KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Kaf Aleph Mar Cheshvan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Chayei Sarah. I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. I've been, we've been doing the Erev Shabbat program now, um, with me being the host for a few weeks now, and every every week as I think and prepare towards the Arab Shabbat program, I ask myself, what does the listener want to hear? We have a fixed part of the program where Rav Tavori speaks about uh, the yortzeit of uh, a gadol whose yortzeit is coming up in the uh, un- in the upcoming week, and then we have uh, my portion of the program. Which is which has a, a flexibility to it. Now KMTT offers a parsha shir every week. This year it's being offered by Rabbi Chanoch Waxman. Last year there were several participants in the in the shir amongst themselves. Uh, yours truly. And the question is: Are the listeners to the Arab Shabbat program also listening to the parsha shir? If so, they probably don't want to hear an additional Parsha Shir. But do they want to hear something on the Parsha that's a little bit more along the idea of a vort, less, less textual analysis, more ideas about the Parsha, ideas that maybe touch upon our everyday lives? Or are the listeners to the Arab Shabbat program not listening to the Parsha Shir and they do want to hear something about the Parsha, something, albeit, albeit shorter, but something about the parsha. In any case, uh, along these lines, I'm experimenting with different formats for the Arab Shabbat program, and uh, I would be very happy to hear your comments. And uh, if you'll notice on the on the website for KMTT, there is a place for comments there, and usually uh, it says comments zero, and that is due to the fact that we believe, though we stand to be corrected. Most of our listeners are listening to their KMTT shiurim on the fly. They're in their car, they're at work, they're jogging. And even if they heard the best shear that they've ever heard in their lives, they heard it while they were in the car. And when they finally get to the office and or home and they finally sit in front of their computer, they don't remember that they really wanted to say, Shkoyach, that was a great shear. So they don't. And... I think uh, it would be productive for KMTT in general and uh, for the Arab Shabbat program specifically to get some feedback, to hear what the listeners uh, have to say. We're always open to hear constructive criticism. We're certainly not a public uh, broadcasting system where the public would would dictate to KMTT what should be what they should be putting out for listeners to hear. However, we're certainly an open-minded um, group of people who are curious and interested to hear what the listeners have to say. In this vein, um, I'll try to do something a little bit different um, with this week's Parsha, um, with this week's program more specifically. Of course, uh, my, my jumping point usually is Parsha Chavua. Um, where I take it, however, is uh, can differ. Um, the beginning of the parsha deals with Avraham bearing Sarah, and there are many issues that uh, Jewish issues that that stem from this issue of burial. 
Um, the continuation of the Parsha, of course, is, is very much showing us the life cycles of Judaism because from the burial of Sarah and Sarah's death, we move to finding a shidduch for Yitzchak, finding the second of the mothers of Am Yisrael, and that is finding Rivka ultimately. And it really closes that circle because the end of the Parsha, Rivka comes and takes the place of Sarah. Yitzchak brings her into... Um, into his mother's tent. He brings Rivka into the tent of his mother, Sarah. And Yitzchak is comforted, comforted after the death of his mother by, by his wife. And this is a beautiful movement within the parsha that we have death, we have burial, and we have, of course... <clears throat> the continuation, the marriage, and of course from the marriage is the next generation, and so forth and so, so on. The, the, Jewish, the, the, the Jewish life cycle, we have death, and we have marriage, and we have children, etc. Within death and burial, and, uh, and finding a shiduch, there, there is something that brings them together specifically, and that is... Once again, the idea that seems to pop up all, a lot in, in, in the Chumash, and that is Eretz Yisrael. Because, though it's no surprise to us within the geographical location of, uh, of Avraham Avinu and Sarah, Sarah is buried in Eretz Yisrael. And not only is she buried in Eretz Yisrael, but land is bought in order to establish a place for Sarai Menus Kever, and which ultimately becomes the Kever for the entire uh, umota, uh, Avot of the Umah. The, our forefathers are buried in Maratha Machpelah in Hebron. Not only Sarah, but Avraham joined her, Yitzchak and Rivka, and Yaakov and Leah as well. And, and for this, a plot of land was bought in Eretz Yisrael, and this was really, we don't find Avraham buying land in Eretz Yisrael, uh, perhaps due to his nomadic lifestyle, there was no need to buy land. There was plenty of empty land where he could pitch his tent and then move to the next place. But a kever is permanent. And you can't take a kever with you. And therefore, at the point where you have a kever, this is the eternal uh, resting place of the human being. And therefore... We cannot. We can no longer be satisfied with a nomadic existence from moving to, from place to place. But Abraham needs to buy a plot of land, and of course he buys a plot of land. A plot of land in Eretz Yisrael because because he's living in Eretz Yisrael. So why would he buy a plot of land in Turkey? But nonetheless, it is significant that it is in Eretz Yisrael, and we know that the issue of being buried in Eretz Yisrael is is not a small issue, and it's taken very seriously in Chazal. And certainly the fact that the first kinyan, the first purchase of land in Eretz Yisrael that is recorded that Avraham made is for a kever is significant in that sense. Of course, within the idea of the shiduch, Eretz Yisrael comes up as well, interestingly enough. Of course, not within the characteristics of Rivka. She's not described as an Eretz Yisrael figure. However... When Avraham is sending his Eved, who we are all brought up and taught as Eliezer, to find an appropriate mate for Yitzchak, 
The Ebed asks, what happens if this wife, this potential wife, doesn't want to come to Eretz Yisrael, to Eretz Canaan? Should I take Yitzchak there to live with her there? And then Abraham says something very, 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 very strong. If the woman does not want to come, you're clear of your oath, don't take Yitzchak there. Yitzchak has to be here, and we'll find him a wife here. The wife might be important, but you're not going to take Yitzchak out of Eretz Yisrael in order to bring him, in order, in order to get a wife. Now it's interesting, in Halakha, we know that um, it is permi- one of the reasons it's permissible to leave Eretz Yisrael is to, to, to find a wife. We know uh, to learn Torah is a reason, and to make a parnasah is a reason, and to find a wife. However, again, we don't have to ask ourselves a halacha question on Avraham. Perhaps this was very specific to Avraham and Yitzchak, because Yitzchak was an, an olat, mima. he wasn't allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael, and therefore he specifically couldn't go to Chutz Laaretz. Or perhaps... There's something greater here. In other words, maybe it's permissible to leave to find a wife. However, where you're going to live is a different question. And if the wife is not willing to come to Eretz Yisrael per se, then it's not worth it for Yitzchak to go there. He could go there to pick her up and bring her, but if she's not willing to come to Eretz Yisrael, then it's not worth it for him to go there. So what the Harsha is essentially establishing is death and burial in Eretz Yisrael, but perhaps, more importantly, living in Eretz Yisrael. Yitzchak, whose married life will essentially begin his life as a father of Am Yisrael, must do this only in Eretz Yisrael. He must live his life in Eretz Yisrael and not in Chutz Laaretz. And this again puts the, the pillar of Eretz Yisrael as a pillar of our faith, that with everything that we talked about it last week, that Avram Avinu is uh, about Tzedakah and Mishpat, values that are not connected to a, a geographical locale. However, Eretz Yisrael is an independent pillar of our faith, which Avram Avinu at this point makes very clear that is non-negotiable. In this sense, it's interesting to uh, note an interesting midrash because if we're talking about if we're talking about living in Eretz Yisrael and we're talking about being buried in Eretz Yisrael, then the parsha is giving us a very clear idea that both are desired. Certainly, Sarai Imenu herself lived in Eretz Yisrael. She moved to Eretz Yisrael and she was buried in Eretz Yisrael. And here in the parsha, together, the two things that we have, we have the end of life, death, burial in Eretz Yisrael, and we have the beginning of life, marriage, also, Dafka in Eretz Yisrael, specifically in Eretz Yisrael. And if she does not want to come to Eretz Yisrael, forget it, the deal's off, find someone else for Yitzchak. This ends as a very interesting midrash, which uh, it's perhaps the Kuzari made famous, it took me a while to find uh, the specific Mirash, but eventually, uh, with the help of uh, a specific search engine, which 
I'm not paid to advertise for, so I won't mention, and my wife, who did the search for me, we were able to put our fingers on the Midrash. And we'll read it in the, in the, in Bereshit Rabbah, though the same, similar Midrash comes up in the Talmud Yerushalmi, um, the truth is, I'm not sure which is an older midrash, which is an older source. Bereshit Rabbah is a very old midrash. The Yerushalmi is also very old. Um, but the Hebrew in the in the midrash Rabbah and Bereshit Rabbah is a little bit easier. Maaseh Berabi 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 Eliezer Shayu Malchin Bepili Shechutz Leteveria. A story about Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda Anasi and Rabbi Eliezer that are walk who are walking in. Philly, which is outside of Tiberia, um, for all our listeners in Philadelphia, perhaps. Roa Ron Shomet Shabami Chutzala Aretz Li Kaver Beretz Israel. They saw a coffin of a dead person that is coming from outside of Israel, outside of Israel to be buried in Eretz Israel. Amar Rebbe LeRabbi Eliezer. Rebbe said to Rabbi Eliezer. What is it worth this person who passed away in Chutz Laaretz and then comes to be buried in Eretz Yisrael? I think this action of living and dying in Chutz Laaretz and then coming to be buried in Eretz Yisrael is considered, in the words of Yirmiyahu, you've decided that my inheritance, the land of Israel, is an abomination in your life. How so? By not living in Eretz Yisrael. So if you don't live in Eretz Yisrael, you are, you are disgusted by Eretz Yisrael. You won't live in Eretz Yisrael. It's an abomination. Ah, However, when you die, then you come to Eretz Yisrael. And what is a dead body? A dead body is a via the most impure object that we have in Halacha. And that you bring to Eretz Yisrael. So you bring, you refuse to live there in your life. And when you die, you let your body, which is the most impure thing, and bring it into Eretz Yisrael, therefore defiling Eretz Yisrael. Very sharp midrash. Now the both the in, in, as I mentioned, this uh, this midrash is f- found in the Yerushalmi and Kilaim as well, the ninth parak of Kilaim, right at the end of Halacha Gimel. And the Pnei Moshe, one of the commentaries on the Yerushalmi, comments. That Rebbe knew who the, the coffin belonged to. They had the potential to move to Eretz Yisrael, to make Aliyah within their life, and they did not. And similarly, the Kuzari says, his interpretation of the Midrash, Aval Amru and then he quotes the Psukim and the Midrash. In other words, both the Pnei Moshe and the Kuzari understand this Midrash, the Yerushalmi, that a person who chooses not to live in Eretz Yisrael, because it's possible for them to live in Eretz Yisrael, but they choose not to, they're essentially calling God's land 
toiva, an abomination. I won't live there. I'll only send my dead body there. So they're calling within their life, Eretz Yisrael toiva. We won't go to Eretz Yisrael while I'm alive. I'll go there when I'm dead. And then what are they essentially doing? They're bringing a dead body into Eretz Yisrael. They're defiling Eretz Yisrael. But Rabbi Eliezer answers Rabbi, Kevan Shuhun Amarle, Kevan Shunikbar Be Eretz Yisrael, Hakadosh Baruchu Mechaperlo, Dichtiv Vichiperad Vatoamo. Nonetheless, Rabbi Eliezer says, once he's buried in Eretz Yisrael, Kadosh Baruchu <coughs> gives him atonement, Vichiperad Matoamo. I'm not exactly sure how to interpret the Midrash if Rabbi Eliezer convinces Rabbi. Or if there is, in fact, a disagreement here. Rebbe is not interested in people coming to Eretz Yisrael to be buried. What is Rebbe's message? Rebbe's message is that life is meant to be lived in Eretz Yisrael. V'chai bahem. As much significance that we can put into death and burial, which unfortunately in certain circles of Judaism today are one of the only places that there is Judaism. People are Jewish in the Beit HaKvarot. They put on the kippah in the Beit HaKvarot. They might not live Shabbat Jewishly and Chagim Jewishly and Tefillin and Talas. They might not do any of that, but they'll bury their parents in a Jewish cemetery with a Jewish rabbi. But that's not the main part of Judaism. The main part of Judaism is living life. And perhaps this is the message of the Parsha as well. Yes, Sarah was buried in Eretz Yisrael and the first purchase of land in Eretz Yisrael by Avraham Avinu, the first recorded purchase of land, was for a kever in Eretz Yisrael. But Sarah Imenu lived in Eretz Yisrael. And Avraham Avinu's connection to Eretz Yisrael was such that he demanded that whoever would marry his son would also live in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is not a cemetery. People who treat Eretz Yisrael like a cemetery are saying what Rebbe said, they refuse to live there and they think of Eretz Yisrael as an abomination, but they'll bury themselves there. Eretz Yisrael is not a cemetery. Eretz Yisrael is a makom kadosh. A cemetery is a makom tameh. Eretz Yisrael is about Beit HaMikdash, about Makom Ketusha, about Mitzvot HaTliyot Ba'aretz, Shemitah, Trumotu Ma'asrot. It's not about being buried there. It's about living life there. And the juxtaposition of these two parshiot hold those two things together. It's true that there is a great significance to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. Maybe significant enough, according to Rabbi Eliezer, to justify being buried in Eretz Yisrael even if you didn't live there. But no one can deny, not Rabbi Eliezer, nor the reader of the Parsha, that the main part of Judaism is life. And life should be lived in Eretz Yisrael. Since we uh, talked about Midrash today, Bereshit Rabbah, it's appropriate um, that this week, uh, Rav Tavori will be speaking about a very important character from uh, the 20th century, uh, Rabbi Menachem Kasher, who compiled a very important book, the Torah Shlema, uh, which, in fact, uh, 
helps us find Midrashim on every Pasuk, Midrashim, Gemarot, a very important uh, work indeed, comp- uh, work of compilation. Um, and we will now give over the microphone to Rav Tavori. This week, Chavzayin Cheshvan is the yard site of Reb Menachem Kasher, one of the great Torah luminaries of the last generation. Rav Kasher was born in Chutzlaretz, lived in a world of Hasidus and Torah. He was brought up, perhaps in a fashion that was typical of a Hasidisha family, to learn in yeshiva, very traditional style of a Polisher Tamid Chacham. And he grew up in that environment, and we know of his activities as a young man already embarking upon a literary career. He began a Torah journal in the early part of the 20th century, about 1918 or so, at at a time when such endeavors were not as common as they are today. Today, almost every yeshiva, almost every organization has their own Torah journal. Rav Kasher published his journal, a specific type of Torah yeshivasha learning, at a very young age. He showed his literary interests at that, already at that early time. When Rav Kasher was in Eretz Yisrael, he began a literary style, perhaps a literary life, that seems to me very unusual for his upbringing, for the type of chassid that he was and continued to be his entire life. One of the most important works that he published was a sefer of his own called Hatkufa Hagadola, The Great Period. This is definitely a pro-Zionist statement discussing the theological implications of the Holocaust and the theological meaning of the establishment of the State of Israel. That phrase that became an issue among different people, we say in the Tfilah Shlom Hamdina, in that prayer for Eretz Yisrael that is made in many communities on Shabbos, the words Reshitz Michad Gulatenu, the beginning of the growth of the redemption. And the phrase Atchalta de Gula, the beginning of redemption, has become quite a bone of contention among different people. Rav Kasher himself used those phrases and saw the historical implications of moving to Eretz Israel, almost being forced to move to Eretz Israel, as part of the Gula process. Included in that Sefer, HaTukufa HaGadola, was a treatise of Talmidim of the Gaon called Kol Hator, the voice of the nightingale. And of course, the allusion is to Shir Hashirim, Kol Hator Nishma We hear this nightingale, we hear this message coming to us, and we have to interpret the message. This pro-Zionist work, Kol Hator, and Atkufag Dola, became almost required reading for religious Zionists when the book was published, and it remains an important text until this very day. It seemed to me 
very unusual that a lit that a Polish Rosh Hashiva would in would write such a work, would disseminate such a work, and would look at this as not a contradiction to his world of Hasidus. In fact, Rav Kasha before had been the first founding Rosh Hashiva of the Geri Yeshiva. The Geri Yeshiva, of course, the classic style of Ger learning of Ger Hasidus, was founded by Rav the yeshiva was founded by Rav Kasher and he was the first Rosh Hashiva. That person who was the founder of the yeshiva, the Rosh Hashiva, publishes a Zionistic treatise. It seems to be very strange. Rav Kasher also was so involved with this world, dealt with issues that are relevant to the modern world, but he dealt with halachic issues which were so complex and so difficult that very few people in the world could undertake to challenge him, or to learn with him, or to even begin to understand the issues involved. I'd like to refer specifically to two issues, and a third interesting topic that he chose. He was fascinated by the fact that the astronauts were landing on the moon. And he wrote a little book perhaps not as well known as his other works, as Adam Malayareach Lo'aralacha. The man on the moon, according to Jewish law. All the halachic issues raised by space travel were dealt with in this book. Now, on one hand, it's a theoretical topic. On one hand, it's an issue that people had not dealt with. But nevertheless, one could say that with a little bit of effort, uh, the average Torah scholar could deal with such an issue. But Rav Kasher also dealt with the issue of the international dateline. As is well known, after the Second World War, many of the Mir Yeshiva and other Yeshivas were exiled and came to certain communities where they established a Yeshiva, established a community. When they went to the Far East, the issue was raised as to which day is Shabbos, perhaps even more important, which day was Yom Kippur, and which day should you fast, and which day the ninth of Tisha would actually be a mitzvah to eat, the tenth would be, of course, an Easter, a big mitzvah to fast, an Easter to eat, a mitzvah to fast, which day is Yom Kippur? And this engendered a great machlokas between different people, the, some of the people that come to mind that dealt with this issue were, of course, the Chazonish, the Briskerav, who debated the issue. Rav Herzog had, took a stand. One of the great geniuses of America, a very unusual person named Chaim Simmerman, was a student of Rav Moshe Salavechik at one time and later became the Rosh Hashiva of Chicago. He had a world reputation as being a genius in the world of Torah. He wrote a book called Agan Hasar, a thick volume about this question about the international dateline. And he mentioned to me at one time, I had the privilege of knowing this Rabbi Zimmerman, at one time he mentioned to me that there were only four or five people in the entire world that could even read his book, that could even understand his book. In order to deal with this issue of the international dateline, one had to have an awareness of astronomy, of astrology, uh, perhaps not of astrology, astronomy, but certainly the, uh, he had to know the Rambam and Hechaz Kiddush HaChodesh with the various diagrams, with the various explanations. He had to know this very well and understand all the halachic implications of the international dateline. Very few people dealt with such an issue. When Rabbi Zimmerman mentioned to me four or five people could understand this book, 
I naturally assumed that Rav Kasha was one of them. Rav Kasha himself dealt with this issue and wrote a treatise about the international dateline. This treatise is published in one of his volumes of responsa called Divrei Menachem, where he de- deals with this issue in his fashion. Another issue that was very controversial, and Rav Kasher decided to take the bull by the horns, as it were, and deal with this issue, was the issue of the Eruv in Manhattan. It's well known that Manhattan is, on one hand, an island. On the other hand, it certainly has a Rishas Havabim. And there are other issues that are, make the issue of, of the Eruv in Manhattan quite complicated. Rav Moshe has, of course, a famous tshuva. Other people have tshuva about the issue. But to write a, a, a treatise, to write a kuntris about this issue, is something that in that you have to know Eruvin obviously very well. You also have to know the climate, the technical arrangements of what goes on in a particular city, and you have to deal with those issues. Rav Kasher published a kuntris on the, on the Eruv in Manhattan, and very few people could really learn that country and know the issues well enough to debate him on an intellectual basis and not purely on an emotional basis whether we want the Eruv or we, we like the idea of an Eruv. Another person who dealt with that Eruv at the same time was a great Rav in Toronto named Rav Price. Rav Price wrote a... He was a real publisher, Rav Price. So he called the, the, his, his, his work a this. Kindres Alatik and Ayrovin in a pamphlet about writing, about erecting an Ayrov in cities. And as Rabbi Price, of course, is the founder, the one who established the Ayrov in Toronto. The basis for the Ayrov in Manhattan was solidly given by Rav Kasher. Some people might disagree, some people might agree, but he was the one who actually dealt with this issue and wrote a major book about it. These areas, of course, are areas that interested Rav Kasher, but something else in his mind, in his literary world, captured his imagination, and in that respect, he blazed a new trail in Torah literature. He was very concerned with the encyclopedic nature of Torah literature. Encyclopedias were not really well-known at all. The only... works that I can think of offhand that were somewhat encyclopedic in nature before Rav Kasher was the Pachad Yitzchak of Lamportney, which is t- t- almost completely obsolete today, but also not well organized enough to use. And the Stechemet of Rav Medini, the Stechemet was a book that until fairly recently was rather encyclopedic in nature, but it really couldn't be used because there were no proper indices and the order seems to be very, very strange, to put it mildly. Rav Kasher wanted to put Torah literature in an encyclopedic form. One of the topics that he chose was to show how Gemara should be able to be done in this way. And he called, he published a small volume called Gemara Shlema. And he wanted to show how we could have a Gemara with the variant texts on the page, with commentaries that were not so well publicized, so well disseminated in in one particular Gemara, 
to show in his image what a Gemara should really look like. Of course, it's a monumental undertaking, and the Bakasher only showed one volume of such a work. He published one volume on Maseches Psachim, and he only did a few pages, the very beginning of the Masechah, to show what could be done. Another area where he was more complete was he published in the Haggadah Shlema. Obviously, the word Shlema interested him to encompass everything. In Haggadah Shlema, it was translated into English. Originally, it was called the Eretz Yisrael Haggadah. In Haggadah Shlema, Rav Kasher wants to show, again, the variant texts of the, of the Haggadah, as well as the famous commentaries of early Rishonim, who he put on the page, included in his Agada Shlema. Very important Agada Shlema are the introductions and comments, lengthy comments, made by Rav Kasher himself about the Haggadah. Many of his works on the Haggadah were also later included in the Divrei Menachem and the volumes of Tshuvas that he wrote. Obviously, Pesachim was an issue that interested him, that he dealt with at length, and we have the Gemara Shlema on Pesachim, and we have the Haggadah Shlema. But perhaps the magnum opus of Rav Kasher was none of the above. He decided to print a Chumash, which would be a compendium of all the Midrashic, Halachic and Agadic sources that are extant, some in print and some in manuscript form. And he called this work the Torah Shlema. He began himself, and it's almost mind-boggling to believe that someone could do the work that he did without the use of computers, without the help of modern technology. He simply collected all manuscripts, all texts of Halacha and Agada Medrash that he could find and put it in one volume. He began slowly but surely, printing one volume every few months of the Torah Shlema. The volumes of Reishis are rather thin, but only can cover a few parashas at a time. A few volumes exist on Sefer Breshis. As he developed the system and worked within Shmos Vayikra, he added compendium Miluim to these volumes. Those Miluim are extremely important to Torah scholars, where again, based on manuscripts, based on his own learning, he developed many areas of Halacha, of Machshava, of Agada, that were based upon comments in Torah Shlema. But the Miluim by themselves are extreme work. Some of the Miluim actually took up volumes by themselves. He has a whole essay, well, a lengthy essay, on the different translations, the different Targumim of the Torah. And those Miluim, and of course, the text of Torah Shlema became an indispensable tool for serious Torah scholars. We, unfortunately, do not have the end, we, Rav Kasha was not privileged to finish the Torah Shlema. After his Petira, he passed away in 1983. He was 88 years old. And he had still been working on this Torah Shlema. He finished Vayikra. Since then, some volumes have been published in the Midbar. His son took over the institute that he founded. 
and continued, but we do not have Sefer Tvarim. Perhaps we'll be privileged that someone will undertake to complete this monument, monumental task of fulfilling the dream of Rav Kasher to have Torah Shlema indeed, not just Torah Shlema until Bamidbar, but Torah Shlema including Sefer Tvarim as well. While some of the efforts that I've shown of Rav Kasher seem monumental for one person, there are many other works that he dealt with. For example, he was a student of the Raghachavar. He was very enamored of the approach of the Raghachavar, of the personality of the Raghachavar. And he wrote many works about the Raghachavar. He wrote, he published the Tzafnas Paneach und Chomesh. He began to publish the Raghachavar's Tzafnas Paneach und Shas. And he wrote a book called Nefaneach Tzfunas where he tries to uncover the secrets of the Raghachavar. Such an amount of work seems mind-boggling in our mind today. I would hope that someday we will be privileged to see someone continue the work of Rav Kasher and finish the Torah Shlema. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. With that, we will be summing up our Arab Shabbat program. Remember, again, we'll be happy to hear comments, questions, on the Arab Shabbat program, or any other shiur on KMTT for that matter. And again, we'll encourage the message that we spoke about at the beginning of our program. Eretz Yisrael is not just a place to be buried in. Eretz Yisrael is a place to live in, to live Jewishly in. And with that, we should have to deal with marrying off our children, unless so burying our loved ones, Shabbat Shalom, and we'll see you next week.